The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the August 10th, 2023 meeting of the Human Rights Commission. I'm Commission Chair Karen Clofton, and I want to thank our San Francisco Human Rights Commission staff, Hatim Mansouri and Anjanette Coates for providing technical assistance with this evening's meeting. Now we would like to open as we have done over the, the past uh, several years, uh, the, tonight's meeting with the Ramatush Ohlone land acknowledgement. I will give a very brief background to the land acknowledgement. In 2019, the commissioners began a process to, uh, under the leadership of tribal leaders here in San Francisco to fulfill an acknowledgement, to create an acknowledgement that would be used not only by the Human Rights Commission, but by the Board of Supervisors and the mayor's office. Under their leadership, under tribal leadership, we have also beyond the uh, acknowledgement developed the cultural district also in partnership and under their guidance. And now we are looking at land reclamation and reconciliation. So it is a process, it is not performative and it is not um, one size fits all. We worked with tribal leadership on this particular acknowledgement to um, make sure that we were giving honor and uh, respect to the First Peoples. And with that, I would like one of our new commissioners, um, Commissioner Rodrigo Duran, to share the acknowledgement with us. Thank you, Madam Chair. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Aho. Thank you, Commissioner. Secretary McKnight, do we have any announcements? This evening's meeting is being held at San Francisco City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place in room 416. Members of the public can join us in person or participate remotely. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to, to speak. People attending in person will be called on first to speak, followed by those attending remotely. 
Anyone calling in, please mute your phone until last to speak. Please use the raised hand icon to indicate that you would like to participate in public comment. Thank you, Secretary McKnight. Please call the meeting to order and the roll call. Item one, call to order and roll call of commissioners. As I call your name, please affirm attendance by saying aye. Chair Karen Clopton. Aye. Vice Chair Ann Champion-Shaw. Aye. Commissioner Rodrigo Duran. Aye. Commissioner Hasib Emran. Aye. Commissioner Mark Kelleher. Commissioner Jason Johnson. Commissioner Jason Pellegrini. Commissioner Leah Pimentel. Aye. Commissioner Michael Sweet. Present. Commissioner Irene Yee Riley. Chair, we have quorum in the meeting. Can we call to order? I'd like to welcome uh, the ambassadors and sneakers. You want to raise your hand? All those who are part of that group, welcome. Uh, I'd like to um, describe this lovely delegation of young people, uh, youth leaders joining us today in our chambers. Uh, I want to thank the Ambassadors and Sneakers program, which is an initiative that brings together German and American youth for a summer institute. Uh, this group has been visiting organizations in San Francisco over the past week, and they've been engaging and learning from agencies about local work in support of human rights. As you know, I'm sure at this point, the human rights movement uh, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is an international, a global movement. The delegation's 24 youth and four chaperones, uh, special blessings and welcome to the chaperones <laughs> of 24 youth, uh, had the opportunity to meet with human the Human Rights Commission's staff, department staff earlier this week. And we're very pleased to have you all with us. Um, and we wanna thank you for joining us. We're, we have a very important topic today as the focus of our, our hearing, our public meeting today, and that's on reparations. It is reparations for African-Americans in San Francisco. It's the beginning of uh, the post report, mm -hmm. final report uh, process or time period. That report was issued the first weekend, July. And, uh, and so this is giving us an opportunity to have context uh, both an international context of reparations uh, for wrongdoings by state action. And as Germans, you, I'm sure you are well aware in your academic careers, as well as in uh, the rest of your lives in Germany, uh, how important reparations reconciliation uh, is uh, to discuss and to address. So we will be talking about uh, World War II reparations. 
uh, and we'll be talking about other uh, reparations movements that uh, have been successful uh, internationally, uh, nationally in the United States, as well as in the state of California. It's not a new concept. It's, it's actually a historic concept. And uh, we have experienced, because of anti-Black racism in the United States, uh, a very checkered and ugly past whenever reparations is mentioned. And that's been true for over 150 years. And with that, Secretary McKnight, if you could please call uh, for general public comment. Thank you, Chair. Item two, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. Now we will open general public comment. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? People attending in person are invited to make public comment up to two minutes. Chair, I see Ace on the case, ready to go. Ready to go, got two minutes and I'll try to get it through. Uh, welcome to the new commissioners. My name is Ace and I'm on the case. Uh, and we're here to talk about reparations today. That's why I thought it was fitting to wear my shirt uh, as I say there. But what I'm here to talk about and I guess I'll talk when it's time to talk, is the, um, uh, the uh, excuse me, Yoshi's, the addition. I mean, the, right now, the RFP has been put out. The last day was in April. So it's been four months. And uh, we haven't heard nothing from City Hall. We haven't heard none from the o OEWD, the HRC, uh, Mayor's Office of Housing, and but but the, I'm I'm not sure what's happening. My name is Ace. I've been around a long time. I remember when they they had the uh, RFP years ago. By now, they would have had a panel. My my situation is, and I'll tell the truth and let go on record that the city is going to throw all of the RFPs out again, and then activate, get a committee together to activate. Uh, Yoshi's, because right now the qualifications that there must be strong community participation. I guess they have to have the money to do it, and um, but there's a lot of qualifications that a lot of the recipients probably are not uh, qualified for. So the whole community must come together and and put it together. So I just thought I'd mention that, and and if the uh, Mayor's Office of Community Housing, don't come up with a panel. I'm going to ask for an investigation, find out what the hell is going on. Why, why are we dragging? The building should be ours. It's, it's, it is ours. Redevelopment left for us. Uh, so anyway, that's what I want to talk about for right now. Thank you very much. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide public comment in chambers? This is your chance. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. People attending remotely are invited to make public comment. Public comments of two minutes. 
Chair, I see no members of the public attending remotely who wish to offer public comment. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed on matters that are not on today's agenda. Item three, adoption of July 13th, 2023 meeting minutes, discussion and possible action item. Review and anticipated adoption of the minutes of the commission's July 13th, 2023 commission meeting. The minutes from the commission meeting were distributed electronically. The meeting videos available on the Human Rights Commission website and transcription will be available upon request to the commission secretary. Now, <clears throat> we will open public comment on the minutes. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to offer comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Chair, I see no persons attending remotely who wish to offer comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed on the minutes. Commissioners, do you have any edits, amendments, or changes to the minutes? Is there a motion to approve the July 13th, 2023 commission meet uh, minutes as submitted. Uh, so moved. Second. It's been moved by Commissioner Imran and seconded by Vice Chair Shaw. Are there any objections? Then by unanimous consent, the minutes of the July 13th commission meeting have been approved as submitted. Secretary McKnight. Thank you, Chair. Item four, reparations and California. The history of achieved reparations in California and nationally and iterations of slavery in California, focusing on enslaved Africans who were transported across the plains or through the jungles of Panama for the gold rush. Presentation. Professor Jean Felser, University of Delaware. There will be public comment. I'd like to welcome Professor Felser and thank you for joining us this evening as San Francisco reviews and we all hope approves the recommendations of the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. It is important to provide context to people especially those who think we here in California are somehow unaffected by the history of this country, that somehow California was some magical place unaffected by the systemic and institutionalized racism that plagued the United States from its inception and still does. I'm very proud and glad that you are here this evening to give us some perspective from which we can launch our beginning discussions uh, on the matter of reparations in our city and the, and the report. Thank you, Professor, for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm truly honored to be able to speak to the context of this incredibly rigorous reparations report and to speak in, re in support of it by giving both the context of the history and to speak a bit about other forms of reparations that have been awarded and won 
um, with great struggle at times in California. I'm speaking from unceded Yurok land in Northern California. And for today, I've called my thoughts, my talk, reparations, justice that repairs. This famous map, slide one, please. We'll bring it yep. up just a moment. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. This is a famous map of slavery in the United States. This map is wrong. In 1885, the country was headed towards civil war over the ownership and sale of humans. The oddly tiny pink California is marked as free. The gray marks the growing slave states. Green expands the territories. For the question of the era was, would these vast territories become free or slave states? The hidden history of slavery in California upends the North-South image of African-American slavery in the US. The hidden history of slave revolts and resistance in California expands the US history of abolition and the struggle for freedom. It sets the stage for the reparations we are talking about tonight. This map again is wrong. California was a slave state and is so now. Slave two, um, slide two, please. Alvin Coffey, this is an image of an enslaved African-American miner. Alvin Coffey was enslaved in California by three owners. He recalled, I made $5,500 for him, rented out in California. He also kept $616 I had saved, and he sold me then for a thousand. Coffee's first owner forced him to leave behind Mahala, his pregnant wife, and their two children. Crossing the plains to protect settlers, oxen, and cargo, his owner had armed Coffee. Unaware that he was being taken to a free state, Coffee agreed to buy his freedom in California and dig for gold on his own time. But instead, his owner rented coffee out to other settlers and also kept the $700 coffee quote earned as a cobbler and a laundryman. Coffee was afraid that if he fled in California, he'd be sold back in New Orleans and he decided to return south with his owner to Missouri, who then sold him again for $1,000. He was forced by his new owner to return back to California, where his next owner agreed to free him for another $1,000. Coffee mined for his owner and himself, and finally he bought himself, his wife, and his children out of slavery. He returned to California, where he founded a school for African Americans and indigenous children, and he prospered as a turkey rancher up in Red, up in Red Bluff. The first senator from California was William Gwynn. He was a plantation owner from Mississippi. Gwynn decided that George Sire and his wife, and we don't know their name, were too old to pick cotton. And in 1855, 
he brought the very elderly African-American couple to San Francisco to work as his house slaves, forcing them, too, to leave their children behind, hostages on his plantation. The sires, isolated and likely illiterate, had no idea that they were now living in a free state. They did not ask Gwynne for wages. After two years, Senator Gwynne ran for re-election and he lost. Deciding to return to his plantation where he still had held 200 enslaved men, women, and children, he decided it wasn't worth the money to transport the aged couple back across the plains. And in 1857, he turned the sires out in the streets of San Francisco, homeless and hungry. A neighborhood of free black people found the couple and informed them that they had been free from the day they crossed into California. Gwynne, they said, owed them for two years of work. Backed by their new friends, the sires sued Senator Gwynne for holding them in bondage unpaid in a free state. They argued that for two years, Gwynne had, quote, appropriated their goods, that, that is, their bodies and their services. And they calculated the value of their labor at $50 a month for George and $55 a month for his unnamed wife, higher because there were so few women to do domestic work. The sires sought $2,282 in back pay or about $64,000 in current dollars. The case Sires v. Gwynn tested whether a white resident in California could force men and women to work without wages in a free state. Had the couple been white, Gwynn would have made a quote, implied promise to pay them and he'd owe them for their work. At trial, the first U.S. Senator from California conceded that he had never given wages to the sires. He had provided them food and shelter, he said, like a parent. He did not pay the sires for the task they performed, quote, out of love or duty, like relatives, he said, who anticipated an inheritance. The sires, however, were neither Gwynne's heirs nor his children an all-white jury decided that they had the wherewithal to know that they were living in a free state, they could have left Gwynn to work for someone else or even left California. But instead, they worked for him, quote, voluntarily as they formerly had done. The U.S. District Court said he still owned the sire's bodies. Should he take them back to Mississippi, their, quote, former relationship would revive and they'd have to work for him without pay. Men and women transported enslaved into California lacked standing as free workers to bring a lawsuit or to testify in court against a white man. Then, oddly, the court conceded that slavery had in fact been outlawed in the state constitution, but it didn't change the sire's destiny. After gold was discovered in 1848, the U.S. wanted California in the Union. In 1849, a constitutional convention in Monterey, dominated by slaveholders, vowed that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall ever be tolerated in this state. They didn't mean it. 
tolerate is not a legal standard. And with this loophole, California fraudulently entered the United States as a free state and soon began to ship $1.5 billion from the gold rush to banks, insurance companies, and shipping firms in the East. The Missouri Compromise was a shameful trifecta of pro-slavery power. One, California would enter the US as a free state. Two, Utah and Nebraska could now choose to join the union as free or slave states. Three, Congress would pass the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Any black person in the North could now be targeted as a runaway slave and sold. In 1850, California passed its very first law, the Act for the Government and Protection of the Indian. This law legalized the kidnap and forced indenture of Indians, boys until they were 25, girls until they were 35. Slavery in California began the day Junipero Serra crossed the Mexican border near San Diego in 1769 to lead the Spanish invasion of California with eight fanatical priests and 100 disgruntled Spanish soldiers. The plan was to conquer and convert thousands of California Native Americans, seize their coastal lands, and build a chain of 21 plantations. This is our fantasy image from a postcard of what the missions looked like. Slide four, please. This is in fact what the California missions looked like. Unlike the churches, our children dreaming of Taco Bells built out of sugar cubes in their fourth grade mission projects, the Kumeyaay tribe swept down from San, the San Diego mesas, burnt the San Diego mission to the ground, killed the Padre, next slide please, killed the Padre and freed all their brethren, never to return. The Kumeyaay freed all of their brethren at the San Diego mission. At San Francisco's mission Dolores, the mission of tears, cap captives, tribal captives fled across the bay in reed canoes. And that's the image on the initial slide from the, um, from the commission itself. At co coordinated slave revolts at Mission Santa Barbara, La Purisima, and Santa Inez, indigenous captives seized the priests and fled by the hundreds into the Thule marshes, pointing to the end of the Spanish mission system. I learned none of this going through the Los Angeles school system or doing a BA and MA at Berkeley. In the early 1800s, the Russian fur traders shipped Alaska natives, next slide please, shipped Alaska native otter hunters down the coast. These were the first slaves carried into California. And in 1808, Russia built a slave colony at Fort Ross in Sonoma County. The Russians deposited the male hunters and the female seamstresses for months on end on the ruthless Farallon Islands, and then shipped the silky pelts, the otter pelts, to China. On the Farallones, the Alaska natives survived by licking water from the crevices in the rocks, 
or they died of rape, hunger, and thirst, but many just paddled away. Here in California, slavery met empire, met the environment in a Pacific slave triangle, Alaska, California, Canton. Our vocabulary is rich in terms for slaves, unpaid workers, chattel slaves, born and sold for profit, peons, targets of settler colonialism, whose bodies and lands were seized during the California genocide, indentured Indian, quote, vagrants, really refugees in flight from the war against them. Today, today, California is the state with the most victims of human trafficking in the, in the nation. Next slide, please. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, called slavery a, quote, hydra-headed monster, cut off one head and two grow in its place. In California, the insatiable hydra has gorged on illegal and legal slavery. It has slithered in our beautiful landscape. It grew many heads. Slavery secured the conquest of California. It settled the land and fostered the wealth of the fifth largest economy in the world. Here, slavery was signed in race. Southern states had always sought to extend plantation slavery to the American West. As tobacco and cotton destroyed Southern as tobacco and cotton destroyed Southern soil, even before the discovery of gold, a few enslaved black men had been marched, marched 3,000 miles across the plains to work in the fields of California. Then with the gold rush, Chinese girls, like the little girl we're seeing in this image here, were sold by destitute families and shipped from the Southern coast of China to the docks of San Francisco, where they were strip searched, auctioned, and sold into caged brothels like this one that lined San Jackson Street, now Grant Avenue. Native American refugees who could not prove that they were employed were handed off to the highest bidder. Refugees from the Indian genocide were seized and sold from reservations and US military forts and delivered deliberately far from their tribal homes to clear the land or work as nannies. Next slide, please. Unlike in the South, California did not grant slaveholders the right to own the children of the enslaved, but everywhere California slavery was gendered. Chattels, this is an image of a Native American girl that was taken in Sacramento, and she is an enslaved nanny for the family of this very white little baby. Next slide, please. Chattel slavery thrived side by side, the clinking of irons in the first chain gangs men in prison just for pickpocketing or minor theft during the gold rush, when a bottle of milk sold for $12 and a loaf of bread for $18. Under a 1,000, 
a $100,000 contract, the California legislature gave a corrupt contractor the ownership, ownership of prisoners from across the state. James Edsel loaded them onto these foul prison brigs. These were old ships that had brought folks out for the gold rush. And then he shopped the prisoners around the bay to work on roads, sewage systems, and at times the mansions of San Francisco. In the mid-1850s, convicts were forced to build their own prison at San Quentin and work or be tortured. Next slide, please. Be tortured in a furniture factory or a jute mill at California's first penitentiary, San, San Quentin. This was a form of early waterboarding. It was copied by San Quentin for, from prisons in the East. Here was born the carceral state in California. The 13th Amendment claims neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, shall exist within the United States. Slavery is not punishment for shoplifting or petty theft. Slavery is not punishment. Next slide, please. This is an Egyptian child um, trafficked child, Shaima Hall. Today, California has the most victims of human trafficking in any state. Asians and Latinos seized in their homelands or at the border are locked in sweatshops to sew California's relaxed chic. African-American and young white women are pimped in brothels in gated communities in Walnut Creek. Trafficked immigrants plow the vineyards and the marijuana grows, deliver pedicures, and provide sex in massage parlors. Teenage girls are forced to advertise themselves in the thriving online sex trade. San Francisco is the 10th top site for human trafficking in the US. Oakland is the sixth. Yet for 250 years, everywhere were slave revolts slave flights, escapes, rescues, refusals, and petition drives. Owners were killed and court cases were won. The enslaved survived. And yet, next slide, please. I don't know if you can read this and I don't wanna read it, but it'll be available online. This was an ad in a California newspaper. It ran throughout um, the, the Bay Area and it establishes that there was chattel slavery in California. African-American slavery in California was distinct. Some owners feared that enslaved people would discover their liberty in the free state and force them to sign contracts, pledging them pledging to remain in bondage for a year or two before they were forced to leave the South. Other enslaved people fled into California's dense forests or along its rivers as soon as they arrived. Few enslaved Black people fled to California. It was over 2,000 miles from home. There was no news in the South of a West Coast abolition movement. And at first, there was no underground railroad that carried runaways. 
I trace this in um, Cal in my book, California, a slave state for anybody who wants to take this further. But to their mutual surprise, here in California, free black people met enslaved black people. They weren't expecting to find each other here. And the free black people hired lawyers, retrieved enslaved black people from ships bound back to the South, or they hid them at Hackett House, a black boarding house in Sacramento. Hovering over enslaved and free black people was the early California Supreme Court case, Inree Perkins, 1852. In June, 1849, Charles Perkins, slave owner, left his humid Mississippi plantation for the gold fields. And he took with him three of his father's enslaved people, Robert Perkins, Carter Perkins, and Sandy Jones. These three men didn't realize that here they were free and they mined for Perkins. After three months, their owner, Charles Perkins, decided he'd make more money if he rented out the men, kept their wages for himself and just mined on his own. But after a few weeks, Perkins had had enough and he told the three men that they had fulfilled their obligations and were free. Perkins returned to the South and the three black men returned to the gold fields and they thrived. Once back in Mississippi, Charles Perkins realized that enslaved black men were selling for $1,000 a piece. So he hired vigilantes to seize the men in California and their gold dust and have them arrested as runaways under California's very own Fugitive Slave Act of 1852. So the Federal Fugitive Slave Act didn't work in California because the enslaved did not flee across a state border into freedom. They were brought in by their owners. California then made it illegal to escape within the state. So the three men were not allowed to testify that they had bought their freedom and they were jailed. Quickly, the Black community raised the first of many defense funds. Five years before Dred Scott, the California Supreme Court justices, all from slave states, decided in Ree Perkins. They ruled that a slave brought into the free state did not become free. People of the United States, unquote, had the right to immigrate to California, quote, with every species of property they had and slaves were property. Hence, California's fugitive slave law was decided constitutional. The court then added that it allowed slavery to endure in order to quote, obliterate black people from California. The court also ignored the very core issue. These three men were residing in a free state and he ordered them shipped back to Mississippi. Had they been allowed to testify that they'd been freed, Black people in California would have found a path to freedom. Next slide. This is the petition that was circulated by the free Black community and delivered to the legislature in California. 
The doctrine of states' rights in the 10th Amendment made it easy for California to legalize racist beliefs that allowed bondage to endure. The ban on African-American, Indian, and Chinese testifying against a white person drove this unique coalition of enslaved and free Black people in California to launch petition drives, rallies, lawsuits, and three colored conventions before the Civil War. This petition drive forged the first civil rights movement in the Golden State. And I can tell you that women aren't supposed to cry at work. And when I held and read these 8,000 petitions that are stored in the, in the state archives in California, I truly wept. I had no idea of this initiative or the terms of black freedom in California and the demand for the right for black people to testify. Finally, in the late 1850s, under this pressure, the dangerous ban disappeared from California codes. For over 250 years, the enslaved in California have sought reparations. When Mexico ended the mission system, Indians demanded retroactive wages for all the churches and barracks they had built and the fields they had planted. And they sought to reclaim the mission compounds as indigenous spaces. At Mission San Juan Capistrano, they demanded the mission land for themselves, and then they just remained and stayed in the compound. Displaced Native Americans in California refused to move onto any homelands still held by other tribes. After the violent purges from Chinatowns in California, in 1886, two enslaved Chinese prostitutes bravely joined 15 free Chinese men to file Wing Hing v. the City of Eureka. I believe this is the first lawsuit for reparations in the United States. But rather than a simple tort case or demand for damages from a negligent town, the Chinese also sued for $112,000 because the city let them become, quote, victims of mob violence. That demand brought together for suffering the as targets of a brutal race riot raises it from a tort action for damages to a demand for reparations. Although the Chinese lost Wing Hing, their bold demand for reparations put other rural towns on notice that racial purges would be costly. With the diversity of slavery we've been talking about in California, there is no single path to reparations. California Native Americans seek land restitution. Now they also demand the removal of dams that send their water to agribusiness in the Central Valley. This summer, in fact, as we're speaking, in 2023, the first dam on the Klamath River has come down and three more will soon follow, returning the water to the tribes. All forms of reparation depend on witnesses, on evidence, on history. Reparations must recover forgotten truths. 
Stolen people undid the deep silences of slavery, and they refused to endorse the fiction that California was a free state. The stories of their quests for freedom found cracks in history's silences. Their stories arose in wiry growth that pushed up through the ceiling mortar of political denial, political denial and academic forgetting. Reparations require a monetary valuation of what has been taken. Estimates for reparations for African-Americans in California run up to $850 billion. In the 19th century, Congress rejected every treaty that would return land to California's indigenous people. But today, there are over 45,000, I'm sorry, 4,500,000 4, acres of federally owned land in California, nearly half the land of the state that is undeveloped, land that could be returned to tribes. In 2015, California agreed to the Kashaya Pomo demand that the state return 700 acres of Matini, land in the fertile wine country on the cliffs over by Fort Ross. In 2019, the Wiat people persuaded the city of Eureka to return 200 acres of Duluat Island, their spiritual homeland and the site of slaughter and a mass kidnap 144 years ago. Reparations restore our forgotten history. June 19th, Juneteenth celebrates the emancipation of African-Americans. On Juneteenth, 2020, crowds toppled a 30-foot statue of mission priest and slaveholder, Father Junipera Serra, whose shadow loomed over a neighborhood park in San Francisco. Three days earlier, another multi-ethnic protest led by Black Lives Matter convinced the city of Sacramento to remove a statue of iconic slaveholder and gold rush hero, John Sutter, from Sutter General Hospital and their streets and clinics named after Sutter all over the state. Toppling statues of Junipera Serra or John Sutter or removing the name Serenus Hastings, the slaveholder and rancher who masterminded the slaughter of Yuki people from Hastings College of Law recalled his slaveholding wealth and removing that name, changing that name, undid heroic mythologies that justified claims for power. Equality means never having to say you're sorry. A statement of regret does not undo harm, but it does admit that an atrocity occurred. Starting in 2009, 150 years after the fact, statements of remorse for slavery of California natives and African-Americans were uttered throughout California by those who did not perpetrate the violence. Today, statements of contrition flow from university presidents and state officials who build prestigious institutions of higher learning on Yurok, Ohlone, and Miwok land. And they still refuse to return native bones and pottery. 
An apology may offer context to demands for equity. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom apologized for, quote, the war of extermination that slaveholder Peter Burnett, the first governor of California, launched against California natives in 1851. Newsom convened a Truth and Healing Council, which many Costanoan and Ohlone tribal people oppose because they say Californians are unready to, quote, listen with their hearts so they can understand and help carry the burden. To have a healthy relationship, it takes two healthy parties. California, they say, still turns the missions into tourist attractions and uses state parks built on tribal land for monetary gain. For the Ohlone, an apology without redress is hypocritical. A true state apology is a pledge to fix a problem. It is call and response. Today, land acknowledgments like we opened with today formally recognize Native Americans as the traditional stewards of the land. They thank a tribe for letting people study or work on land that was stolen, paved over, built over. Land acknowledgments do not exist in the past tense. They recognize unpaid debt for long-held theft, but they do not return stolen children, land, bones, or repressed history. Slavery in California was costly. Enslaved African-Americans earned no wages. Alaska natives starved when the otter hunters trapped in California missed the long Alaska summers when salmon spawn in the creeks to feed the people. During the era of the 1880s, when purges against the Chinese arose in 200 California towns, the enslaved prostitutes were driven from their new jobs, free work in shops or kitchens. How now to run a tab on the cost of human bondage? Where to begin to pay down the crushing debt? How to pay down the future? To whom? To direct descendants of the enslaved or to the populations who suffered the legacy of human bondage in segregated neighborhoods, underfunded schools, or polluted streets? Why tell this history? Next slide, please. The history of California's indigenous children appear in the logs of boarding schools, in their parents' letters demanding pay for their children's field labor, and on unnamed graves in cemeteries built and buried behind crumbling schools. Next slide. In the boarding schools, the Indian boarding schools, that were built because federal law said Indian children were required to have an education, but built no public schools on the reservations. Children were kidnapped and taken to the Indian boarding schools. These are girls, very young girls, working in the fields of Riverside at Sherman Boarding School. Next slide. We can just quietly look at this picture for a moment. Um, 
This is also from a California boarding school. Justice that repairs compensates for current inequities that flowed from the slavery we are discussing. Truth is a precondition of restitution. Last slide. Thank you. Can a history of slavery be hopeful? Will truth mark a closure to silence and forge a resistant foundation? Archie Lee, and this is from a 19th century image, fled from slavery in California over and over and over again. In 1858, Black abolitionists in San Francisco pulled Archie Lee out of a rowboat in the middle of San Francisco Bay that was ferrying him to a ship bound for New Orleans. And finally, he was set free. This commission on reparations does not, in my view, see its work as a moral reckoning because human bondage is not an event that occurred in the past. Slavery in California was a sustained structure of economic, gender, and racial power. Across the state, reparations have been kicked between the legislature and courts since the state sanctioned slavery. Financial restitution must overcome the barriers of owners long dead, institutions defunct, and the legal proceeding in the legal precedent of sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity says that a government cannot be sued without its own consent for wrongs committed in its name. Nevertheless, after scores of witnesses, Congress granted $20,000 each to Japanese Americans, most from California, who were detained in the internment camps or concentration camps inland during World War II. In 2015, Congress authorized payments of up to $10,000 per day for over 70 Americans taken hostage in Iran in 1979, the largest reparations payout ever. Demands for financial reparations erase dangerous stereotypes, such as 19th century images of lazy Black people or of diseased Chinese prostitutes. That image dangerously reborn in the recent anti-Asian assaults based on the falsehood that COVID is the quote Chinese flu. History has aided the return of sacred regalia and human bones to California tribes. Descendants of the captive Alaska natives joined the California Kashaya Pomo to build a history trail from Fort Ross on the cliffs over Bodega Bay down to the sea to tell visitors and school children that this imposing tourist site was built on a damaged ecosystem and a former slave site. Yurok historian Jack Norton says that to know history is to quote, live more graciously, more graciously upon this land. The San Francisco Commission's reparation report establishes that preconditions for African-Americans quote, to live more graciously upon this land. The report squarely faces our current existential debate about facts, truth, and accountability. It relies on the voices of those who were deceived 
and who resisted and of those who witnessed. This history of the enslaved in California does not calculate a total sum of evil. Hopefully though, it makes the invisible visible. The voices of the men and women held in human bondage have smuggled out shards of the evidence of slavery so that we become accountable. The distance between the voices of the enslaved and my own is great. These voices insist that we recognize that California grew outside the national myth of progress. Their voices insist that for 250 years, the enslaved in California cried forth in bondage and demanded justice that repairs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Felzer. Um, while it's sobering to hear the history of our great state of California um, and its treatment of people who were not European, the wealth of the few built on the backs of the many. It's in, I'm emotional. <laughs> um, just seeing the slides and and also thinking of Professor Felzer going through all of this uh, and the human toll that it still takes. When we talk about that slavery is ongoing right here in our city, that it's ongoing in Oakland, the sixth largest. And we talk about, and we try to make a distinction with sex trafficking, but what was the slave trade but sex trafficking uh, and breeding, having, uh, accommodating rapists and having breeding farms and access to people to do whatever the slaveholders, the enslavers in their depravity saw fit. I thought that this was extremely important for us to talk about the context so that all of you, all of the students who are here today, all of the people who are here today, all of the commissioners can answer the question, oh, we didn't have slavery in California. What are you people talking about? In fact, not only did chattel slavery of black people thrive in California, but it was thriving right here in San Francisco. The positives that I take from both Dr. Uh, Felser's book, um, California, A Slave State, as well as her presentation, 
was the resiliency and the coming together of freed black people to free enslaved people. It happened over and over again. And in fact, Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was one of our first uh, black women millionaires uh, here, lived here in San Francisco, made money here in San Francisco, financed the Harper's Ferry raid of John Brown. So black people in San Francisco came together to help each other and the enslaved to be free. We are facing a tragic time in America where the truth is being repressed and denied, where the truth of enslavement and the basis of our country, which is based on the theft of land and forced labor. They are trying to rewrite it, erase it, claim that it didn't happen. Uh, and they do this in the interests of, at this point, not paying reparations, not admitting, because through DNA testing, as well as all of the documentation that now we have available to us, it's easier to find out and to establish a, a direct link to plantations, to the banks, to the insurance companies. This was a huge business. This was the basis of the American economy and American capitalism. So rather than admit that and figure it out, paying the bill, we are facing uh, a regressive movement to deny and to silence all of us. And just like there were always, right from the beginning, voices standing and shouting against this morally corrupt and depraved concept and action of chattel slavery of black people, we have to stand now in that strong tradition to rise up against the lies, the myths, and the stereotypes. We will not be silenced. And as Ace on the case says, cut the check. And with that, I'd like to open the floor to public comment. Thank you, Chair. We welcome public comment now. Persons attending in, in chambers would approach the microphone, we'll call you out and you will have two minutes to speak. I recognize Ace on the case. Welcome, sir. It was so overwhelming and emotional. I'm, I'm tearful myself and I like to give honor to the person that did that report and I got to get her book and she got to sign it. But the bottom line is 
Ain't no job I want my five. I want the intestine of George Washington. He was my great, 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 great grandfather. I did a DA, but they went to the 40 years and they had no more record. But I know he's my great, great, great grandfather. So they can use me as an example if they want to test me, take government. I want mine. You could, you could email it to me. You could cash app it to me. I want mine. So the bottom line is I'm so excited. Hey, I, I'm tickled black, not pink, but I'm tickled black right now. I'm so excited. I'm so proud to be a black man. Hey, I'm a great, I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. And I'm a great grandfather. Yeah, I, I look pretty young, but I'm, I'm, I'll be 70 in six months. And I want to make sure ain't no job I want my father. I don't know how to express it. Or do I got to go before the president or whoever? But I want my father and everything else that goes with it. And I give great honor to the professor that did that report because it was, and another thing she had mentioned about what Reverend Brown had mentioned in one of his, you know, I do a lot of recording, but he mentioned about the first governor of this state. He didn't want no blacks here and all that. All that has to be mentioned and she brought it up. But I want to give honor to Reverend Brown. Y'all need to listen to Reverend Brown, although he's a little long-winded, <laughs> but he'd be telling some truth. My name is Ace, damn it, and I'm on the case. Thank you. Hello, commissioners. I'm Gloria Berry. I am on the reparations committee here in San Francisco. I'm also an elected member of the San Francisco Democratic Party for identification purposes only. Um, yes, I would like to thank Professor Jean Fowser. I don't know where she's at. She's on the screen. But I would like to thank her for her report. The rhetoric that slavery was not here in San Francisco is annoying at this point. Um, Commissioner Shaw, I don't know if you know, but um, in 1980, I became a member of Bethel AME Church, and they're on the record as being part of the Underground Railroad. Slaves came here for safety and to get resources and navigation of this racist city through that church. So it's a lot of history here in San Francisco. And I would also like to challenge folks who are guests today, who may be new to this subject or whatnot, is to the point where right now you either like us being in disparities when it comes to education, you must like us being the most prenatal birth death population in the city. You must like us being poisoned by the Hunters Point shipyard. You must like us being incarcerated. You must like us being on drugs. You must like us in all these disparities if you are not speaking up for reparations. So I would hope that more word is spread and I don't like the word allies, but people become partners in this movement because the whole world, I just got back from South Africa, the whole world is looking at San Francisco and reparations. And you can be part of this history and remember that we're gonna have people of all skin tones blocking this. So we need everybody's help. Thank you. Is there anybody else attending in chambers? 
who would like to make public comment? Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand feature. Are there anybody? Chair, there are no persons attending remotely who have identified themselves wishing to make comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. Commissioners, do you have any questions or thoughts for Professor Felzer? Vice Chair Shaw. Um, yes, um, I have a couple of things. Um, it was such a moving presentation, Chair, and like you, I was also emotional as Professor Felzer uh, walked us through uh, the history of slavery in the state of California. Um, such compelling work, such thorough and extensive research that you've done, Professor Felzer, regarding um, regarding this atrocity of slavery. And I was wondering, um, you said something um, very poignant when you said that you did not learn this at UC Berkeley. And I was wondering, what is your, um, what compelled you? What, what um, to write and do this kind of research? Um, this, this is just startling information. So you as a Caucasian woman, what what caused you? What what prompted you to write this, Professor Felser? Mm. Thank you for for the question. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, I had completed my last book called um, "Driven Out: The Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans," and I think there were two bookends to my delving into something of the place where I, I grew up. I went to Hamilton High in LA. Um, I worked with what I thought were the finest and were indeed outstanding people at Berkeley. And I didn't learn any of this, hmm. but for Driven Out, I came upon that image of the young Chinese girl in the caged brothel in San Francisco. And it was from the 1870s or early 1880s. And I stared at it and just kept saying, what happened to the 13th Amendment? Mm. And I needed to answer that question. The other bookend that drove me to this project was I'm, I'm in Northern California now and a few years ago, in the local paper, the Eureka Times Standard, there was an article about a 15-year-old girl. She was homeless and wandering the streets of Hollywood, and she got picked up by a couple of men and driven the length of the state up to Lake County, which is a very hot inland county. It's very lowly populated. And they were growers and they kept her on a marijuana farm and they locked her in a metal crate. They drilled two holes into the crate, one to prod her and one to hose her down. And they let her out 
to sexually service the field workers and themselves, and then to do in August, September, October, the trimming of the buds from the cannabis plant. One day they drove her down to Sacramento and they locked her in a motel room while they went to do the shopping. She saw a telephone, dialed 911, and she freed herself. So those stories made me just have a sense of the depth of what I didn't know, which was a lot, but also the heroic um, endeavors that I found every single time I opened the archives of the slave revolt, the resilience, the resistance. Um, I don't know if you know the um, African-American poet, Shirley Ann Williams, who has passed, but we were colleagues at UC San Diego and Shirley Ann said to me, you know, you white girls don't give enough credit to survival. And that mantra that came out of working together and a friendship um, has stuck with me that I also needed to factor in survival as a kind of resistance and a kind of rebellion when people don't want some other people to survive. So those are the context. There are many more in the book, but those were the most pressing, urgent contexts that drove me to do this work. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Professor Felser. Another thing I wanted to highlight, too, that really stuck out for me personally was the year 1852. And Miss Berry had alluded to it with myself being um, just, just proud to serve a great people. I'm the executive pastor of Bethel Amy Church, San Francisco, which is the oldest African-American church in the city and one of the oldest in the state, too. I know Third Baptist um, is shortly after us. And when you talk about survival, um, I think about the religious freedom that even in um, hostile, racist environment, a group of people came together and knew that they had freedom in God and was able to form a religious institution, which is part of the bigger, the AME Church, which is the oldest Black denomination in the world being formed in 1787. So to survive and overcome, I know that's who we are as people, as African-Americans, um, even in the midst of 1852 Perkins case, which, you know, I, I was just thinking all of this that was going on in the city, and yet my church was being formed, even in the midst. And so I think about when you mentioned poets, you mentioned Shirley Ann Williams, I was thinking about Maya Angelou with the great and still I rise, you know, mm -hmm. and so um, I think that pretty much sums up us as a people and um, helps to give us fortitude as we move on toward the reparations and justice for us. So thank you so much for sharing. It's, it's just if, such incredible information. If I may, there was a moment at your church um, where it was the night that Archie Lee was freed and the Black community was celebrating at the AME church. Hmm. And they were broke. They had supported so many of these lawsuits and they were tired. They were drained. They were frightened. It's now 1858. 
And a guy named James Nagel shows up at the church in the middle of the celebration. And he's been sent by the black governor of British Columbia with a map. And he's come to offer black African-Americans in San Francisco the offer to please come move to Vancouver. And he would give them 20 acres of land, the vote, education for their kids, and a welcome if they wanted it in the Episcopalian church. And over the next three weeks, 800 African-American people from California joined what they called the Exodus. And they got on ships. Um, there wasn't a North-South Railroad. And they loaded onto ships and accepted Governor Douglas's offer to come to live in Vancouver. Some of them sat out the Civil War and came back. The first Black judge came back. Mifflin Wister Gibbs was from California. And some of them remained in the safety and the freedom of Vancouver. But that celebration and the unrolling of that map where he's showing people who didn't even know where British Columbia was, but they knew what they were going through. Mm. What was being offered to them was a historic night. And we don't think about a Black exodus from San Francisco. Mm. And wow. it happened at the, the AME church. Wow. Thank you. I did not know that information. Thank you so much. And oh, I will. We can get in touch. More. Yes, please. It's in please. the book. Oh my gosh. Thank you. And we'll certainly get the book. Thank you so much. Commissioner Imran. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Professor Felzer, I want to first thank you for, for that very thorough and, and moving uh, presentation to this body. One, one, I'm going to put my, I'm an attorney, so I'm going to put my lawyer uh, hat on here and just speak to you because one consistent theme that I found in your presentation is case after case, there's repeated discrimination and whether that be, and even if there's facts, there's the, the law, the facts speak for itself. When I look at the cases, Cyrus Gwynn, Perkins case, Wing Hing versus Eureka and Dred Scott case, which made it all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, all resulted in losses for people of color. And if you can speak to how government institutions like the justice system, which is supposed to be representative of all people, continuously perpetuate discrimination and, and hold people of color really back from reaching their full potential. Thank you. Oh, golly, I think we've all been sitting for a long time. I don't know if I can do that, you know. Quickly, I think it's important to remember the victories that Archie Lee was arrested over four times and he was banned from testifying to the fact that he was free, um, as were everybody in, in California. And there's this rescue where Mary Ellen Pleasant's husband, who um, Karen Clopton, referred to Mary Ellen Pleasant. Her husband was a cook on a ship and he hears that there is a ship waiting to take Archie Lee back to New Orleans. And the black community in San Francisco hires the police tugboat 
to go out and rescue Archie Lee as he's about to be boarded on this ship, the Osbiella, in the middle of San Francisco Bay to be shipped back to San Francisco. And Mary Ellen um, Pleasant's husband says, this is going to come down and we've got to rescue Archie Lee now, who's being kept in a rowboat in a cove on Angel Island. And there was a very, very low level African-American administrator um, who issues a writ of habeas corpus to produce Archie Lee. And people didn't even know he had that power, that he had the stamp. And this guy produces a writ of habeas corpus and that's how Archie Lee is freed. So I think we need to be, I don't need to tell you this, sir, but we need to know where the fissures are, where we can move, how we can find, um, how we can use the law and how the law was used. And finally, Archie Lee is actually allowed one of the first African-American people to testify on his own behalf, how he was entitled to freedom. So I think that the, um, the justice system and how much of the civil rights movement came both through the legislature and through the courts, pressured from the streets. And that's the movement I grew up in. And I think that we need to work on all fronts, including the justice system, um, where we can. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Madam Chair, I'll yield back. Commissioner Duran. Um, thank you, uh, Professor Felzer, uh, for this wonderful presentation. And I, I think your approach is 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 unique. Uh, it's somewhat of a trifecta where you analyze, you know, the the Asian Chinese experience, the Black experience, but also the Native American experience around slavery in California. So I commend you for that. And I, I'm curious as to if you have any insights as to the uh, if there are any uh, current Native American reparations movement, as we are speaking about reparations uh, in regards to the African, African American community. I mean, we are on stolen land. You know, this is sacred to them, as sacred as Tenochtitlan, Jerusalem, and Mecca. Um, and I'm wondering where the Native American community in California are in terms of reparations. There is a, um, there is a commission almost a parallel commission. And it actually is meeting and issuing its reports even as we speak. And next week, there'll be a long presentation on where they're, they're going with demands for reparations. So I, throughout writing this book, I kept looking for something I didn't find, which was more contact, contact between different groups of people and support of each other. And I didn't find it, but I also have to be realistic that people who are living in brutal conditions are surviving and doing the best they can. But that commission is ongoing and I can get you the name and the the people um, who, who are doing that work now. The demands are different. The demands for education, 
for healthcare are also folded into demands for land. And that gives it an entirely different context because a lot of the land that was stolen is just realistically not going to be given back. But when I was I was struck with how much arable land is available. And there are other special needs. During COVID, there were no vaccines going onto the reservations. And but I knew from being up here in Northern California that there were library vans, you know, the little mobile library vans still delivering books to the kids on the reservations. And someone got the idea, why not put vaccines on the library vans that were already going out there and use the, the facilities that were already being invented or that had been invented. So I think that there are realistic and economic and then really important bold demands that can be woven in together and that groups need to, that's why I really wanted to speak to the successes of reparations, for example, with the Japanese Americans and getting the $20,000 or the land being returned um, in the middle of fancy, you know, the fancy wine country to the Pomo Kashaya. So I, my worldview, my gut optimistic repressed personality really hopes that there will be an overlapping and an energy between the different groups that are supporting reparations, which doesn't mean to disregard the distinctness of the history. It's not my place really to speak to that to you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Professor, Professor Felser for helping to set the stage, give the context this evening for our discussion, uh, the beginning of our discussions this evening and uh, to our dedicated meeting on September 14th about the report and, and what our next steps are. We're extremely grateful for your work, for your time and uh, thank you. Oh, it's an honor to have been invited. Thank you all. Mr. Secretary, please call the next item. Item five, discussion on African-American Reparations Advisory Committee final report. Members of the commission will discuss the final reparations report. Presentation will be managed through our chair. This will be a discussion item. The final reparations report submitted by the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee will be presented to the Board of Supervisors on Tuesday, September 19th. We are building to that day by discussing the recommendations made by the advisory committee and ensuring our communities are aware of what is included in the report and how they can advocate for these recommendations leading up to and on the day when the report is discussed by the Board of Supervisors. The Human Rights Commission will hold community meetings to share with the public what is included in the report 
And this commission will be briefed on the re reparations report at our next meeting on Thursday, September 14th. Please make sure to join us with this important briefing. Uh, we will share out dates and locations of other community meetings as soon as we have the schedule. And I want now to have us as a commission uh, as at your pleasure and pleasure uh, to discuss the report and its recommendations. Commissioners, just first impressions or concerns or any suggestions that you might have for the committee. Commissioner Emron. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Madam Chair. I had some brief comments I wanted to make to this body. I just wanted to take a moment to recognize you, uh, Madam Chair, and applaud your leadership in bringing such an important topic before this body. Um, the historic uh, African-American Reparations Advisory Committee final report is finally here before us, and I believe it needs to be read and analyzed with an open mind, compassionate heart, and a sincere commitment to the future. I believe it is vital for this Human Rights Commission to hear from the public, to receive the broadest and most widespread inclusion of public opinion, to build consensus going forward so these ripe issues can be addressed and redressed. I also want to acknowledge the Human Rights Commission staff for the many hours of dedication um, for the concerns and analysis that's been addressed. This work didn't merely spawn from the past few years, but rather it's a history that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. The history of our country has been very complex. And this report examines the systematic discrimination and persecution the African-American community has faced when it comes to housing, the criminal justice system, healthcare, education, and so much more. I believe that the goal of this historical report is to bring American society to a new reckoning with how our past affects the current conditions of African-Americans and to make America a better place by helping those that are, are truly disadvantaged. We owe it to those who were ripped from their homes those many years ago, shipped here across the Atlantic. We owe it to the millions of Americans who were born into bondage, knew only a life of servitude, and died anonymous deaths as prisoners of an unjust system. We owe it to the millions of descendants of these slaves, for they are the heirs to a society of inequities and indignities. Reparations are ultimately about respect and reconciliation and the hope that one day all Americans can walk together towards a much more just future. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the work ahead. Thank you, Madam Chair. I yield back. Commissioner Duran. Thank you, Madam <laughs> Chair. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I just want to congratulate, you know, the the advisory uh, commission um, for putting together such a thorough uh, report. Um, I I was very moved by the context and the history um, of this very city that I love, that I was born and raised in, that I, and, that, and that I knew of the injustices that have existed. Um, but uh, seeing this really thought out and written report only further exemplifies why this this is so crucial and necessary right now. My, um, I guess a recommendation or, or thought concern 
and moving forward when we have, uh, let's see, the whole body talk about uh, this report is how do we engage all the city departments because everyone's accountable and there are, you know, there's health, there's economic empowerment, housing. And so I'm wondering if uh, we are going to have a presence from each department be present in this um, this journey because it's a long journey ahead. Okay. Um, well, I think that we, uh, Commissioner Johnson. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I too also was moved by the amazing reports and thank all those involved with this. I know this has been a huge community effort um, informed by lots of voices, lots of input, lots of passion, lots of history, and of most importantly, lots of facts. And I think that um, it's really important to think about um, what was just said in the previous um, this presentation around how do we continue to learn from each other in each other's communities um, in situations where reparations have been successfully granted to ensure that this also um, is the case for this proposal. I also, um, I couldn't help but notice in the pre presentation um, the previous presentation, the talk about the um, reparations that were granted to Japanese Americans and in just a couple of um, paragraphs following that mention of that successful case um, was the perception, the false perception of African-Americans being lazy and somehow potentially undeserving of reparations. Um, we know that this is a false narrative and I think that that context is important to make sure that we provide as we continue to move forward with proposing reparations. One of the things I also appreciated about the proposal was the multifaceted approach to the, the proposal, that it wasn't just about, as some people have called, handing out money, that it was about creating an infrastructure to support how not only will that, that financial support um, advance um, the Black community, but also how do you provide that wraparound support to ensure that there are other dimensions of advancement, other dimensions of building wealth, and other dimensions of education. Um, again, recognizing, again, the false perceptions of Black Americans not um, uh, being either uh, ignorant or, or, again, lazy. So again, I appreciate the, um, the care that went into shaping this proposal to, to combat those false perceptions um, and also to again, to provide the wraparound support um, when this support is granted. Thank you. Vice Chair Shaw. And if I can add to that, to what um, Commissioner Jason had just mentioned as far as building wealth, the importance of that, but I also read in there, uh, maintaining the wealth because you can have and build but lose. And so how all of that um, is compiled um, in this 
uh, report is is just really great. It's it's very thorough and a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of work has gone into it. And so um, we just know that in the end, we will be successful. And we're praying to our God who has brought us this far uh, by faith and will lead us on and journey us on to justice that we deserve, uh, especially beginning here in San Francisco. As uh, Sister Barry said, the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. I know, I believe it was in Evanston, Illinois, where reparations were given. But um, we know on a city of this level of San Francisco, this is major. And so uh, we know, we just know, I just believe in my spirit. I just believe I know God is up to something and something great is going to take place here when everything comes to pass. And when all the work of all of our people have gone forth into this will come out successful, not only for us, because it's always, always say this, and I say this to my children, what we do is bigger than us. It's, it's bigger. It's not only just the present, but this will impact future generations. And so um, we're going to just continue and forge on in truth and forge on in love, right? And forge on in justice. So thank you so much to the Reparations Committee for all their hard work. Looking forward to the greater that's yet to come. And to follow through with Reverend Shaw's uh, last remarks here, it is about love. It's about the leadership of valuing everyone. This is about humanity and how Black people have been dehumanized and devalued. And as we embrace reparations and teach others about why rep reparations and what that should look like, as we do that, all of us, to do it with that basic value of love, of the leadership of valuing everyone. I do want to say one last thing about in the context of reparations are not unusual. <laughs> Uh, reparations, of course, when you talk about Black people because of anti-Black racism uh, among uh, even non-white members of our community and whataboutism, looking at what, well, what about this group or that group? We need to start here. Um, there's, all, there's been laughter. Oh, well, how do we do that? And who's eligible and this sort of thing? As if it were uh, a comedy as opposed to uh, the reality of obligation uh, because it's about obligation. It's not about who deserves what. Um, we do need to have that shared vocabulary that chattel slavery in America was reprehensible. It was dehumanizing and there is a debt owed. So that debt, that obligation is real. I wanna note that, um, and the report highlights this, 
that uh, there have been, been many types of reparation that have been given over the year, over the many decades. And uh, the one I always found the most interesting was that in 1983, the Japanese employed, Japanese American, because these are all Americans, um, city employees were given reparations for being dismissed or put on leave during the three years of internment while they were in, put into concentration camps. And I think that people don't even realize that, you know, their first stop on that after their land, their homes were taken from them, uh, that they were put in the um, racetracks in the stables, a family per a stable where a horse had been. This is where the horse is. They put entire families in the horse stall. Um, that kind of dehumanization for three years uh, was uh, deemed unconstitutional and they were given reparations. So we're talking about a period much longer uh, that has been an extended period of taking land uh, by eminent domain, by the city through the redevelopment process we're talking about uh, the forced out migration of black people. And we're talking about reparations because of redlining in the city and county of San Francisco. I can put a map of red, a red line map over any map today, whether it's the MTA lines, banks, supermarkets, you name it. And it's an ugly, persistent, awful, endemic, and systematic anti-Black racism that that reveals. Um, it is one of the things that I would have Kathy Mulkey Meyer do uh, whenever we have presentations is, okay, I want the red line to map over that because people need to see what this is. This is today. This isn't yesterday. This is now. Um, as the banks are, uh, and many of the banks own the payday lending uh, stores, they're closing branches of banks and opening payday lending, which has usurious interests. The tax on poor people, the tax on Black people, the, uh, the way that the schools are funded and who is teaching and what is the curriculum. Uh, there's so much to tackle, and this report addresses every aspect, and I laud the committee. I'm uh, very proud to be part of this process, and our next step will be on September 14th. In the meanwhile, if the commissioners could uh, continue their review and make notes, uh, of specific things. Um, we'll be back to you. Uh, in the meanwhile, staff and the committee are working on an executive summary that should be available um, soon. And uh, I will now open up this uh, item for public comment. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? 
Hi, thank you so much for your words. And um, again, I'm Gloria Berry. And you all are so right on how much work was put into this report. Tears, trauma, re being re-traumatized by having to discuss what should be included in this report and why, and be able to articulate in a way that hopefully those who will be here long after us will carry out. And I just wanna ask, I have an ask that this body in any way you can influence, discuss, and perhaps execute how the hiring of the director of the Department of Reparations will be hired. The budget was recently approved, 2 million a year for that department. And I have concerned of folks who might not have the passion and the understanding and the love that we as a committee put together for this report. I personally would like to see someone in that position that has the audacity to want all recommendations carried out that is bold enough to say this is deserved and more. So our body will sunset in January. So I'm not sure how much influence we can have on that hiring process, but then I will hope that some way this body can help find a person to fill that spot that is accountable to the community, that's transparent and not a political tool or a sellout, I'm sorry. But um, thank you and thank you for having this on the agenda and let's work on outreach. <laughs> Are there any other members of the public who would like to make comment? Are there any members of the public remotely who would like to provide testimony? Please use the raised hand icon. Chair, I see no members of the public attending remotely who wish to offer comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. I wanna thank uh, all of you for your insight and comments. Uh, I would like to, uh, ask that you share with your communities, with your workplaces, um, with all of your networks, the invitation for our next meeting, September 14th, uh, when we will be briefed by Director Davis on the final reparations report. We've also invited the chair and vice chair of the reparations advisory committee to attend and um, In addition, please help us get the word out uh, to, to everyone about the Board of Supervisors meeting on September 19th. If they come on the 14th, they'll learn how to advocate for the recommendations made in the report. Please familiarize yourself with the recommendations. Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Chair. And let me add, there are the Human Rights Commission will be working to provide three community outreach uh, periods. This commission meeting, presentation by Director Davis will be one of them. There are dates set 
uh, for the other two, I will send you information as soon as I have it with flyer and other information. Be grateful if you help get that word out. Uh, secondly, the executive summary that was noted is just fitting, going through its final approvals. Once I have it, I will send it to you electronically as soon as it exists. Uh, and when we have, they will, I'm sure, print it in time, but I'm not sure when that'll happen. But I do know that the reparations report, all 400 pages of it, has been printed. 11 copies have been set aside for the commissioners. If you want that in advance of the meeting, please write me. I expect that within a week. I'll notify you when it's ready, but get a hold of me. It's not going to be something I, I'm going to just easily tanned off, but I'll get one to you. Let's just, if you want it in advance, if you're going to use it, please let me know and I will find a way to get it to you. Yes, please. Thank you. Of course. And that's all I have at the time. Okay. Chair, we are ready for the next item. Item six, activities in the community. Commissioners report out and events in the community they have attended or wish to notify the commission of in advance. This is a discussion item and there will be public comment. Commissioners, would you like to share any activities you participated in since we last met or any upcoming activities that you'd like for us to amplify? Commissioner Shaw. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, on last Saturday, August the 5th, um, my church, Bethel Amy, San Francisco, uh, we held a coffee and conversation searching for hope, the loss, present and future impact on minorities and women. And we featured uh, Justice Terry L. Jackson, who is the first African-American appellate uh, court justice uh, here in San Francisco, as well as Lajene Shelton, who is a UC Law San Francisco student. And it was a wonderful conversation. Um, as Justice Jackson told us about her life and her journey uh, to the appellate court. Um, she also gave some very great advice. She was like a mantra. She always says, I do not fear your rejection and I do not need your approval. Um, and how those sayings have carried her through all kinds of uh, racism and things uh, as an African-American woman that she has had to unfortunately um, encounter um in the law um she also talked about politics and how it has no place in the courtroom as you know with the um supreme court um last uh the supreme court um and all of the um that it's come down from uh regarding uh roe versus wade and affirmative action and so she was talking about how politics has no place in the courtroom and how objection is necessary is necessary um for fairness um and so um and how we um as a people in our own lives can create a climate of fairness and change for the betterment of everyone. It was a very, very, very great coffee and conversation. And if you're interested in, in learning more about it, you can actually go to um, our Facebook page where we still have the video up and you can go back and hear some of the great things Justice Jackson had to say. So thank you. I just wanna applaud the Human Rights Commission staff for their wonderful work at uh, Sunday Streets on uh, what was that July 30th? I was very pleased, and you're very modest, uh, Secretary McKnight. You said we're gonna have a a space, and we'll be there. No, you all partnered with Sunday Streets to really host a block, you know, to engage a community, to inform a community, and to have fun. 
you know, so I commend you all for the work. I know you all were there uh, throughout the day and it was a, a solid team of about eight folks. And I was just happy to see you all and, and be part of that experience. So kudos to, to the team. Um, and I just want to invite uh, the commission um, on the 15th of September, I have the honor of uh, producing uh, in partnership with the General Consulate of, of Mexico in San Francisco, the uh, El Grito de Independencia. And so join us, you know, we're going to be at the, um, the mayor's balcony as well as the Civic Center Plaza uh, celebrating uh, the Mexican Independence Day with delicious food, music, and, and wonderful uh, performances. Gracias. Commissioner Imran. Uh, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Uh, Commissioner Duran, I'm gonna mark that on my calendar as well. Um, but on July 22nd, I, I, I was able to uh, attend the, the American Legion Cafe Post 384 93rd anniversary. It was uh, held in San Francisco's Chinatown at the Far East Cafe. Uh, it's the oldest Chinese American veteran organization in the country. I, and I actually ran into Commissioner Yi e. Riley as well. So it was just a great time, great food, and a great celebration. Um, and I just also wanted to take a moment to highlight uh, those disabled veterans and the, and the homeless veterans that are, that are still uh, sleeping on our streets and just how important. And they're many times they're overrepresented in the homeless population as well. And, and uh, just kind of extending my best wishes to them. And as a government body, I believe we have every tool in our toolbox to make sure that every um, homeless, unhoused individual, but also especially those those that are veterans that are, make sure that they're, they're housed with dignity and respect. Um, so just want to continue to highlight that and, and just want to thank the commissioners again for, for a great meeting too. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, and uh, I'll open the floor to uh, our last opportunity for public comment. So gotta always take opportunity to get the word out. Um, but first I wanted to thank Commissioner Imran about his words in reference to veterans. Um, I'm formerly homeless veteran, three years homeless in the city of San Francisco where there was just one bed for a female veteran in San Francisco. And um, so thank you. And then I wanted to announce that Monday, August 14th, this Monday is a reparations meeting at 5.30 p.m. We do have the report to the board on September 14th, but our monthly meetings still continue. And I believe our focus will be mostly outreach and whatnot, what else we could do to push the movement forward. And other than that, I just want us to all support the children going back to school and whatever we can do to make this uh, an exciting time for them and encouraging. And as Human Rights Commission, like to emphasize they have the right to an education. And it, it just doesn't seem to really be pushed here in San Francisco, but um, I don't wanna ramble, I'll yield my time and thank you for your meeting. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? 
please use the raised hand icon. Chair, I see no members of the public attending remotely who wish to offer comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. Mr. Secretary. Item seven, adjournment. I want to thank the members of the public and commissioners for participating in the August 10th, 2023 convening of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Our next meeting is scheduled for Thursday, September 14th, 2023, and we will be receiving a brief on the final reparations report. Is there a motion to adjourn? Second. Moved by Commissioner Sweet, seconded by Commissioner Johnson. Without objections, Commissioner Shaw, seconded by Commissioner Shaw. Okay, unless there are any objections, by acclamation, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.